seated. <clears throat> Do you desire to love life and to see good days? Obviously, we all do. We have a natural thirst and a yearning in our souls to enjoy life. There's a lot of trouble in this world. We recognize that. Lots of bad days and miserable circumstances to avoid. Many of these troubles that descend upon human beings fall outside our power to control. There are, as we've been reminded today already, accidents. There are natural disasters that sweep in upon people. There are war between nations and all the trouble that that causes. There's disease and economic collapse. Things we cannot control. But every civilization in human history has displayed a keen interest in addressing the things that people can control. World religions seek the aid of some higher power or powers that can affect these greater trials. And philosophers through the ages have sought to steer people's lives down good paths. In the New Testament world, pagans sought to secure the protection of the gods by offering sacrifices to please them in their homes, in their temples, placating the gods will then be favorable to us. Stoic, Epicurean, Cynic, and other types of philosophers championed ways that their followers could enjoy life and see good days. Listen to our voice. Follow our way of thinking. And your days will be good. Our culture, of course, is more influenced by enlightened thinking, romanticism, individualism, evolutionism, secularism, and the like. And under such influences, Western culture teaches us to be true to ourselves. That's the message, and that's how we'll enjoy good days. Be true to yourself. Feel good about yourself. Live freely in sync with your self-determined identity. You do that, You'll enjoy life. From the genesis of human history, whether religion or philosophy or whatever it is, all people follow a way. Everyone does. People follow some path of life they believe will enable them to enjoy life and see good days. We have the partiers on one side that have their way of doing that. Philosophers on another angle, the educated, the non-educated, those who love to work with their hands and those who love to work with ideas and the young and the old. And on it goes, there's, everybody has a way to enjoy life and see good days. Now here is a joy-saturated thought. We gather as the body of Christ today following a Savior who is the way, the truth, and the life. We gather here today following the singular, unfailing bridge of eternal pleasures in the presence of God. In the presence of the one true and living God, we have come to know the way, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we rejoice then to consciously align our lives with the way that Jesus blazed for us and the way onto which He calls us. 
He lived a certain way, and He calls us to live that way as well. The ancient Romans hated this. They despised the followers of the way, it was called, because they believed it upset the pagan gods, and therefore it compromised Rome's security. Rome's ability to enjoy life and see good days was compromised by the Christians who were not placating, appeasing the gods. They were following just this one man, they thought. Pagans wanted to love life. They wanted to see good days, and it frustrated them to violence that the Christians were messing this all up and angering the gods of Rome particularly. And we get this. We understand this. not so far removed from those ancient days. The followers of Christ, as the followers of Christ, we're routinely denounced for holding beliefs that conflict with what our culture believes to be the best pathway to loving life and seeing good days. We say things they don't want to hear. They don't like it and they complain. Sometimes they get hostile. But we are just as likely in our context because of the age of Christianity in this world and people's experience with it, we are just as likely in our context to hear the criticism that we are hypocrites. We get the one, you're thinking wrongly, you're messing up our world, but we also get this other, that you're living hypocritically. You're not living in line with what your master teaches. Now this is really bad, to be sure. When the church is charged with hypocrisy, it's a bad thing. It's a horror when the world justifiably points an accusatory finger at the followers of Jesus who bring reproach upon His name. We don't like that. We don't want that. But it is good that the world realizes that Christianity is a life. It is a way. It is a moral way of life. They see it that way. They understand that it is that. And therefore, it is a good thing when they accuse sinners in the Christian camp of hypocrisy. Now, as we return to 1 Peter 3 today, Peter has been stressing the importance of a believer's way of life. We'll look first at chapter 1. But picking up here in chapter 3 today as we return to our study through this book, Peter's been stressing the importance of living out the way. Living the life to which God has called us. We have been saved, we find in verse 1 of chapter 1. He writes to the elect exiles of the, divert, of the dispersion. According to the foreknowledge of God, verse 2, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Notice this next phrase. For obedience to Jesus Christ. And sprinkling with His blood. They're referring there, of course, to His death. His atoning death. Why are we saved? For obedience to Jesus Christ. We're saved for many reasons that we could fill in, but we are saved in part that we display the glory of God by walking in this world on the path of Christ. In sync with His call to godliness. Chapter 2, having been saved by Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9, we are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are to live to proclaim to a lost world that we have been delivered from the darkness. And the way that we live our lives is an indication that we have been so delivered by Christ. Once, he says, verse 10, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is our high calling to represent Jesus Christ as a kingdom of priests. Now in the verses that follow, you'll notice there in chapter 2, Peter fleshes this out in practical terms, especially with respect to relationships. Chapter 2, verse 13, what do we find there? Here's what this means in how you relate to your government. To be submissive to the laws of the land in which you live. Here's what it means to be a follower of Christ in the relationship between servants and masters. Chapter 2, verse 18. In chapter 3, verse 1, he addresses wives and how they relate to their husbands. And then in chapter 3 and verse 7, husbands and how they relate to their wives. He's working out in practical terms what it looks like to live like a Christian. What it means to have a life that's been transformed by the saving work of Christ. So we come now to chapter 3 and verse 8 where Peter begins to close out this section detailing the way of Christ, this high moral calling uh, to believers. We see this as something of a concluding section here in the book. Now, it's not an exhaustive list that we're going to find here. It's not a carefully outlined list. It's a string of directives that challenge us to live a life of obedience to the Lord. And... Let's realize the danger here. We know these things. But God has brought us sovereignly to this place today to pause, to think, to analyze our lives in light of God's high call upon us as a kingdom of priests. As those who have been saved to demonstrate the life of Christ in a dark and fallen world. Here's what God, through His Spirit, says to you and to me today verse 8 finally all of you obviously a concluding section and all of you broadening now the application to the entire assembly all of you have unity of mind sympathy brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind Unity of mind. It's not easy to get along with other people in the close confines of a ministering church. I think that is the emphasis here. All of you, and with the emphasis on brotherly love, that is love for the believers in the context of people who know one another. It's not always easy to get along as God's people, but we have a moral obligation to pursue unified thinking. I don't believe this is a call to bland conformity of thought. But it is a call to fight the alienating pride of self-centeredness that fuels factions and divisions, that fights with ideas. Peter's not exhorting us to ignore differences of opinion among us. 
it is proper for us to express our divergent beliefs and sharpen one another with these discussions. But Christ calls each of us as believers in the church to work hard at gaining agreement, at understanding one another, and emphasizing unity. Now let's admit something we don't maybe talk about a lot, but it's right there in front of us all the time, and it's a good thing as part of a healthy church, but let's admit it, there are some very divergent opinions in this assembly. We're very unified, we're in a very small circle in our orientation of life, but within that circle, once you get down on the ground, you realize there's some real differences. We have differences of opinion concerning management of money concerning the raising of children, concerning making entertainment choices, fashion, church management. A lot of different opinions on those things, don't we? We know that. Of course we do. And I think, again, it's right for us to discuss those differences. And I think it is a credit to the spirit of a church and a sign of spiritual health when for love of Christ and faithfulness to His Word... We unify our thoughts. That our love for Christ and our faithfulness to His Word overwhelms these differences of opinion. This, what is far more important, unites us as we work through the details of our differences of opinion. He calls us here to unity of mind. That's a project among us. It is a work to align our thinking as brothers and sisters in Christ, not agitating for my way and seeking to divide the body because of my opinions. Now there's a fine balance, isn't there? We understand there's there's more to be said. There's a fine balance between standing for truth and yielding to error. And none of us draws that line perfectly, I'm sure. But we must labor as a church to unite our beliefs on God's Word and their application to life. We must learn to root out our relation, from our relationships our pet ideas, our pet projects, and our pet peeves which divide rather than unite. Now this is one reason why it's wise for a church to have a church covenant. What a church covenant does, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not the whole Bible, it's just a summary statement. But what it is as a summary statement, it says in essence this is what matters. With that church covenant is a doctrinal statement, and with that doctrinal statement we add as a church our core distinctive statement. These, these documents are not unimportant. They're not the Bible, but they are important. And what they do is they identify what really matters what is of utmost importance in the conversation of a church. Not to say that our differences are unimportant, that our opinions are not to be discussed, but to say that what really matters needs to be at the heart and the core of our unity as a church. And these documents help us to that end. And it is why we need to be very cautious about introducing concepts and practices that just interest some but are not at the core of what Jesus reveals the New Testament church should be. We can have our opinions. We can differ in mind on various ideas. 
but together we are to labor to unite our thinking with one another. That's a virtue to which God calls us. Secondly, he says, have sympathy. The redeemed are to relate emotionally to the experiences of others. We're to take up one another's pain. It is unfitting for a follower of Jesus to stand on the sidelines cringing when something happens to another brother or sister in the, in the church particularly, to stand on the sidelines cringing and saying essentially, boy, I'm glad that didn't happen to me. That's evil. What we are to do is to join in emotionally, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. That's sympathy as far as the Greek term is concerned. Then we have brotherly love. For reasons I'll explain later, I believe this is at the very core of this 8th verse. It is the heart of the matter. The Christian church is to be distinguished by the members' love for one another. We are to display to the world that the bond of Christ unites us more powerfully than all the differences that could divide us. Jesus binds our hearts together. We're to relate to one another in self-sacrificing ways. That's what love does. We're to put one another's interests ahead of our own, counting one another better than ourselves. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, He has called you to display love for one another in the body of Christ as an evidence of Jesus' active conquest of a people for His name in this world. What did he teach us? By your love for one another. I could have said by your love for me, but he said there, taught us in John 13, by your love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. It's how we relate to each other, not simply how we relate to the risen Christ that distinguishes us. A tender heart. The Greek word indicates deeply felt sensitivity for others. It is the opposite of self-centered, callous, clueless, unimaginative thinking about other people. It's not the kind of thinking that just asks, what about me? And sits down, minds its own business and leaves. But it's the kind of thinking that says, what's going on in the hearts and the lives of others? And it invests itself into those relationships. A humble mind, finally. Here in verse 8, we're not to be wise in our own eyes. We are not to assert ourselves in self-promoting ways. We are to be people who listen, people who are reasonable. We're to be open to correction, instruction, and counsel. We are to not to compare ourselves favorably in competition with others. Comparing ourselves to make ourselves look better than others that's not what a humble person does that's not a humble mind now there might be something in this list of directives that misses us a bit i think i think we pick out here properly that there's something uniquely going on kind of almost artistic with peter's words i list them here on this graphic in order from left to right but unity of mind sympathy tender-hearted humble mind notice there the brackets the unity of mind and humble mind is essentially the same idea. And we notice then in the interior, sympathy and tenderheartedness, essentially the same idea. 
And as this structure is found throughout the Bible, and particularly in Hebrew thought, and that's where Peter's mind was steeped as he was raised in Hebrew thought, what this does is it centers the main idea at the, at the middle. And so I think we could rightly discern here that brotherly love is really the controlling concept of this verse. It's the central concept, the core of the matter. When your heart truly rejoices in God's love for you, love will fill your relationships with others. Unity of mind, humble mind, sympathy, tenderheartedness, all driven by a love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. While verse 9 also applies to relationships within the assembly, there, seem to be a, there seems to be a shift in emphasis now to relationships with those outside the assembly. So we've looked at ourselves here. Let's take a deep breath, commercial break, and work ourselves now to consider what applies in here, but what's really going to apply most often outside. What is that? What does Peter say? Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now there's something here in this verse that is very obvious. And we want to deal with that first. And then we'll move to something that's not so obvious. But what is very obvious here is that we are not to retaliate against our enemies. That's not God's call upon our lives. This is not a word of counsel to nations, by the way. It's a word to Christ's followers. This doesn't apply to nations, but it applies to us. The way of Christ rules out vengeance and retaliation. It rules out using nasty words to fight nasty words. But positively, we are to respond to misuse and opposition to harsh and critical words with words of blessing and deeds of love. Wow. That's hard. That's a calling that can only come with divine power. can only be realized with divine power, right? It's one thing to say, all right, I'll strategize my life and I won't fight back in the same way, but it's something very other to say, bless those who harm you. This is what Jesus taught us, is it not? Wow. He said, you know where we're going, don't you? Uh, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Love your enemies, Jesus said. Peter, in fact, addressed this from the life of Christ in chapter 2, verse 22, when he said, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, putting his, himself in the hands of God. He did not retaliate. And he calls us to do this same thing. Every one of us 
is going to struggle to get along with someone. In fact, I'm pretty sure, I talked to the vast majority here, you're struggling to get along with someone right now. There's somebody in your life that's making it pretty miserable. we got to get this. You will never gain an advantage by returning evil for evil. It won't happen. That is not how God created His moral universe. It's the most natural thing in the world for us to return fight with fight. To return evil for evil. But Jesus taught His followers, don't think like that. You will never gain an advantage. You will only fill your life with regret. It's just not how God structured the universe. The Apostle Paul put it this way, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's what you don't do. Now, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Without getting into the burning coals, the idea is this is how you fight. You fight evil with good. There are ancient parallels in religion and philosophy where we can find the advice against retaliation. It's not difficult to find in the ancient text. But this idea that we're to go past that and actually bless those who harm us, this is Jesus doing. And only He could give us this instruction. Bless our enemies. Pray for them. Do positive good toward them. That is radical thinking. But it is our calling It's a way we find very unnatural, but it is the way of the Spirit. To bless those who oppose us means we pray that God would bestow His grace upon them. We speak words of support to them. We pray for them. We do not hate them. And we can come up with our own counsel and throw Jesus' counsel out, but this is the life to which we've been called. Don't return evil for evil. Now, that's the obvious. It's hard, but it's very, very obvious to us. What we look at now is what may not be quite so obvious to us. And that is, as we read this verse, something was happening there that we might not have picked up on at all, and our brain kind of just fills in the blanks, and we might not realize that half of us filled in one thing and half of us filled in another. And that is that phrase to this. I don't want to get overly technical on this, but I think it's important for us to be thinking this way as we read the Bible and learning to understand it. In which direction does the phrase to this point? 
Is it pointing to what comes before, or is it pointing to what is yet to follow that phrase? So here we can lay it out. For to this you are called. That is what he just said, or to this, now get ready, this is to what you're called to. If it points backwards and it's saying something like, you were called to this life of enemy blessing so that you will obtain God's blessing on your life. As we obey what God has said, He pours out His blessing upon us. If it points forward, it is something like, you were called to a life of enemy blessing because this is a fitting response to God's blessing of your life. I don't want to speak for the Spirit of God, and I don't want to speak for the Apostle Peter, but I kind of wonder if we stood him up here, if he might not say, yeah, go whichever way you want to go. Now, he had one in view, I realize, but obviously both are true, aren't they? They're really glorious truths that are uh, presented in other places of Scripture. If we live the life to which Christ calls us, we will enjoy God's blessing in this life and the next. That is true, point one, the backward look. And living such a life is the only fitting way to live for someone who has been chosen by God to reap eternal glory. There seems to be a slight advantage to the forward option in the larger context of 1 Peter. We were called as a kingdom of priests to bless the world. But a slight advantage to the backwards option in light of verse 10, which starts with the word for, giving what seems to be then a motivation from the Old Testament text, which speaks about the outcome of our lives. It's a very difficult call, and believe me, good people differ on which way we take this. But what I think we can discern is that Peter appeals to Psalm 34, a psalm that seems to wield a strong influence upon his encouragement of these suffering believers. And so as we look at that text, we come then to verse 10 where he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Do you desire to love life? Do you want to see good days? Here it is, continuing on as he draws now from Psalm 34. Every human being in history has this desire. But this is counsel that now synchronizes with Christ who is our life and with His counsel to us. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. If you want to walk on the way, you have to guard your speech. We all know quite well the trouble our words can cause. Every one of us could give some illustrations that are personal. Lying, bitter venting, gossip, retaliatory words, incendiary speech, that is fighting words, cursing. Our speech should be distinguishable from the speech of unbelievers. We should be known as people who have a clean mouth and speak gracious, honest, non-treacherous words. Realizing again, we must fill in the blanks. There are times to say hard things. Jesus did. But our speech should be filled with grace and truth. Verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. That's pretty basic. 
but the broad, all-encompassing directive reminding us that the Christian life on earth is a never-ending battle against sin. It's always turning away from evil and always seeking to do what is good. We must discipline ourselves to say no to the natural passions which oppose the nature and the law of God. We're to rely so heartily on God's indwelling Spirit that we learn to control our sinful desires. So we replace the orientation, if it feels good, do it, with the orientation, if it pleases God, do it. And if not, don't. Let Him seek peace and pursue it. Troublemaking, self-serving power grabs, fighting words, factions, dissensions are all unbecoming to a follower of Christ. The angels pronouncing Christ's birth said what? Peace on earth. He's here. Jesus is called, in fact, the Prince of Peace. He came on a mission to reconcile sinners with God, to unite Jews and Gentiles in one body, as Paul writes it in Ephesians 4, making peace. For He, quote, Himself is our peace. Chapter 2, verse 14. There are times we have to take a stand contending boldly against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And there are times we must confront brothers and sisters in Christ who embrace falsehood, disturbing other believers, walking in moral corruption. The Bible teaches us this. But as people for whom Christ purchased peace with God for us, it is only fitting that we live as peacemakers. This is our life. It is only fitting that we strive to reconcile estranged parties, diffuse competitive situations, quench factions, and bring people together. Now the motivation for all this follows in verse 12 with the word for. For, what's it matter? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Positively, putting this all together with verse 10, it forms a compelling set of motives, doesn't it? Those who live righteously and turn from sin will love life and see good days. And this will result because God will look on them with favor and tune His ear to their prayers. Conversely, God resists those who live sinfully. So this verse is a promise that God will shine His grace and His favor down upon the obedient and turn a resistant face against the disobedient. What more motivation do we need? In fact, if that does not thrill you and challenge you at the same time, you probably need to be born again. If you don't have any interest in the face of God shining down upon you and you have no fear of the displeasure of God, there's something really wrong in your heart. Analyze it. Think about it. For those of us who know the Lord, this is grand prospect. To love life and see good days. To have the eyes of the Lord upon me for good and His ears open to my prayers. This comes as we walk the life of faith. I think a few thoughts are in order here to make sure that we grasp it rightly. Let's say, first of all, that wanting to love life and see good days is a noble desire. It's not a sinful one. There are some Christians who you would almost think that was the case. 
there's any joy in their life, if there's any good days, it's because we're selfish, they seem to say. He holds out here the idea that you want to you desire life. You want to enjoy it? You want to see good days? Here it is. Not that's a bad idea, but here it is. The problem comes not with our desires being too strong, but with them being too strong for the wrong things and too weak for the right things. And the problem also comes when we want to love life and see good days, but we think this blessing comes from a way other than what God has revealed. I find my way to this life. If I was successful, if I was wealthy, if I was married, if I wasn't married, if I was surrounded by friends, if I was famous, if I was free of trials, if I was used by God to a greater degree, then I would really love life and see good days. Those indeed would be good days. You see, we can think like that. And it's not what God is saying to us here. God's counsel is enjoying life and seeing good days comes by living faithfully before the Lord. A relationship with Him, step by step, aligning our lives in obedience to His call upon us. Those are good days. That's a life worth enjoying. Part of it is we need to learn what to enjoy. Maybe you need to rework your definition of the good life. And for some, it may be that you're living it right now. You're always looking to some other life. And as God looks down upon you with eyes upon you of love and with ears open to your prayers, He's saying, this is the good life that I've given you. You don't realize how good your days are. There are others who in another angle need to redefine what good living is. Turning away from our own self-centered and godless ways and pursuits to follow the path of Christ. We're reminded in these verses then that loving life and seeing good days is achieved by living out the transformed life that Jesus saved us to live. And in that, we can be content. Enjoying life comes through synchronizing our lives with God's character and with God's counsel. And that is good. It's going to get better. All of these messy things are going to all be gone one day. But right now, Enjoying life and seeing good days is centered in a relationship with Christ that leads to transformed living. A second line of thought that I think is vital here as we relate to this is that we don't get the wrong idea about this list of commands and directives. The wrong idea that we can get is that i got to try harder. I've got to be a better person. I have to rely upon myself and discipline my life so that I become a better individual and thereby will grasp the blessing of God. The idea is not that I can achieve God's favor by living morally. That's not what God is really saying here ultimately. 
the basis of this entire instruction is the salvation that we have freely received in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 10, is in the book of 1 Peter. We've got to deal with that first. He has chosen us as His own. He has called us to be His kingdom of priests. He has given us new life. Rebirthed us. All of this is a work of God that then translates into a certain kind of life. It's not a work of us that achieves something before God. So be very careful with that. If there's an emptiness in your heart, in your relationship toward God, if you're saying, my life is falling apart, there's an emptiness there, it isn't, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go from here now today and I'm going to take this list and I'm going to try to live these things out. You'll fail. You won't do it. If the Spirit of God does not dwell in you and God has not given you His saving grace, it won't make a bit of difference if you do these things. You'll be miserable and indeed you won't be able to. The basis of this instruction is the salvation that we have freely received in Christ, but it is right for us to identify that life and to pursue it with all diligence. Which then leads and just meshes into thirdly. It brings us to the person here who is seeking to please God by your own good deeds. In fact, you might even look at this list and say, I'm not doing too badly. The truth of the matter is that's not how God's universe operates. You don't impress Him with your deeds. Our righteousness, God says, if you want to ask Him that question, Isaiah 64, 6, He says that our righteousness as it is as filthy rags in His sight. We've got to be very careful here not to go after this list and think that it just comes from me and it's a way that I impress God because my righteous deeds are as filthy rags in His sight. What we need is for Christ's righteousness to be given to us. It starts with a gift. It starts with a new spiritual birth. It starts with the indwelling Spirit of God. It starts with an act of God. Something that He does for us. A salvation that comes from outside of ourselves as we place our faith and our trust that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of my sin. And it's His righteousness that is given to me as a gift. Now I'm on the path. Having come to trust in His resurrection power, His defeat of sin and death and Satan, now seeing that it is what He has done, now I can walk on this path. Indeed, now He empowers me on this path to live righteously. And if you say, that I, I just don't do it. I'm falling apart everywhere. I don't do what God calls me to do. I, don't, I feel guilty about it. I know that I'm not faithful to Him. Maybe the first thing that has to happen is you need to meet Him. You need to come to know Jesus Christ personally. Once having come to meet Him, now He puts His arm around you and by His indwelling Spirit of God, which is real, whose presence is here in this life, now in that power, we begin to pursue the life to which Christ called us. 
we begin to walk on the way with his aid, with his power, with his strength, actively with discipline seeking to put into line our lives with Christ's calling. We've got to get this all in order. And if you think that works come first and then that fits you for a relationship with God, you've got the wrong order. You've got the order so wrong, you're going to fall apart. Meet Jesus first. Trust His saving grace and then live out the life to which He's called us. For those of us who know Jesus, this is, this is just good work, isn't it? This is just good spiritual labor and exercise for us to think through this list, to see where we fall short, to know that we have to be called again to repentance and to change. But let me tell you, there is before every one of us lost and saved this issue. Am I going to listen to the voice of God who says, here is how you love life and see good days? Or am I going to fill in my own definitions, my own patterns of life, my own counsel, and pursue life and good days on my terms? You will fail if you pursue it on your own terms. But what joy there is here for us to know, in the counsel of God, there is the ability by aligning my life with Christ to love life and to see good days. They'll be filled with trouble. They'll be filled with sin indeed as we repent and walk, but this will all end well. And so glorious is that coming day of walking into the presence of Christ in His righteousness, having followed Him in this path. So glorious is that day that the light is shining on our lives now. So that we can say, through the veil of tears and the difficulties of this life, these are good days. Let's pray. Father, there's work to do for each one of us in response to this passage of Scripture. I pray that You would lead us to turn from sin. There's certainly things that we're all clinging to in our pride, in our sensuality, in our self-wisdom and promotion that we must let go of. And I pray in behalf of those who are clinging to life itself, and have not let go to trust Christ as Savior, I pray that they'd come to saving faith today, that you'll move them to see, I need to be saved. I need to meet Christ. And for those of us who know Him and are being transformed by our walk with Him, teach us where we need to change. Teach us where we need to grow. 
and thank You that You have allowed us in this life through obedience and trust in Your Word to enjoy life and see good days. Lord, we know that this all pales in comparison with what we will see. We thank You for that promise as this book has revealed an inheritance in Your presence. To this end, we labor asking for Your aid through Christ. Amen. Please stand and...